Alright, if you would turn back to Paul's epistle to the first or Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. They were not I guess they were the first Corinthians in some sense. Turn with me to chapter three there. And begin reading at verse 16. That'll be our text this evening. Just looking at two verses tonight. And again, it's just so amazing how providential expository preaching can be on a day such as this with everything going on, with the historical implications of October 31st. May the Lord teach us from this passage. Verse 16. These are the words of God. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. In the Christian life, it is very healthy for all of us to have our toes occasionally stepped on and our hearts periodically examined by the sharp admonitions of the Word of God. This passage is one of those places that puts our heart at a crossroads, that forces us to look introspectively and ask some very pointy questions about the state of our own souls, our own attitudes, and our own motives. When you read verses 16 and 17, not only do you look at your Bible... But your Bible looks at you. And it forces you to ask, Is this about me? Am I guilty of this sin? And that is an assessment that all of our hearts must undergo when we approach such a passage. All of us must examine ourselves in light of the Word. The text before us is a serious and sobering warning to anyone who would dare bring harm or injury or defilement to the church of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks in no uncertain terms as he tells the Corinthians that the one who seeks to destroy the church will be destroyed by God Himself. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't mince words. You destroy God's church God will destroy you. These verses are not an exaggeration. These verses are not an overstatement. God means business. As we dive into this text, I do not want you, listen, I do not want you to focus on other people that you have known in other churches and other experiences that you have had I don't want you to think about other people who brought pain and injury and defilement upon the body because I'm I'm sure that we could all think of plenty of personal anecdotes. Consider yourself. Here at Christ Fellowship in Paris, Tennessee, are you building up or are you tearing down the Lord's church? It's been a a couple of weeks since I've been in 1 Corinthians, we've had our brother Kraft was here last Sunday and Jackson Sunday before. So let me give you the context of this chapter just to get you up to speed. Paul begins this chapter in verses 1 through 4 by addressing the carnality and immaturity 
of the Corinthian believers. He says this pointed question, are ye not carnal? And this carnal attitude manifested itself in their party spirit as they were attaching themselves to various men. There were those that said, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. And then there was that one group at the end, remember, that said, I am of Christ. And remember how we noted that that really wasn't a better group. In some ways, that was the worst of the worst because they were essentially saying, I don't need any human instructors. I don't need any preacher. I just follow Jesus. Some things haven't changed. Then in verses 5 through 9, Paul demonstrates the foolishness of following men, one man over another, because all true ministers are God's laborers. They're all striving for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Any true minister is not laboring for his own agenda, but for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we all have our favorites, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're all partial to certain preachers over others, but we must not pit them against each other, because it is God who calls preachers. And to pit one preacher against another, if they are truly God's men, is to try to divide God against Himself, which simply cannot be done. I understand there might be practical limits in our fellowship. There's ecclesiastical separation that sometimes has to take place. But the church down the road that preaches the gospel, that exalts Jesus Christ, they're not our enemy. They're not our enemy. Then in verses 10 through 15, Paul continues, and he says that though all ministers are working for the same goals, they must each individually take heed how they work, because every man is personally accountable to God for the manner of work that he performs and the motives that drive his heart. So we're all working together, but we're individually examined. And while you should have the same goals and the same aspirations for the spreading of the gospel and the furtherance of the kingdom, as do other Christians, you will not be judged on the basis of what another believer has done. You will give an answer to God for what you did in the service of Christ. There will be no riding of coattails at the judgment seat of Christ. We will not be able to say, well, Lord, I was a member of a very busy and thriving and wonderful church. If you are not contributing, if you are not working, if you are not laboring, it doesn't matter who your friends are. And it is in this setting of building up the church, of of building up the New Testament ministry, that Paul issues this solemn warning in verses 16 and 17 to those that would do harm to the church. May this text engender within us, may it stir our hearts with a passion for the harmony and the security of the church of the living God. And may we walk circumspectly so as to never do anything that would defile the church of Jesus Christ. Let me say this, you're not going to be able to plead ignorance either. If you are doing something that is harmful to the church, you'll not be able to say, well, I I, I didn't know. It is your responsibility to fork through your own life and heart with the Word of God and daily examine yourself. And again, this is one of those texts that more than others steps on our toes. And my toes were stepped on as I was preparing for this sermon. I I stand in need of the same grace that I am ministering to you. And I must preach this to my own self first before I can preach it to you. But as we look at these verses, 
I want to give you four simple headings. The first is this, the church defined. The church defined in verse 16. Paul says this, Know ye not? Know ye not? And this simple question is a unique feature of the Corinthian epistle. Paul asks this question as a scathing rebuke to a proud congregation who does not know a fraction of what they think they know. Implicit in this question is the condemnation of not living the reality of the spiritual truths that we should know by now. Paul uses this question ten times in the Corinthian epistle. He only uses it one other time in the rest of the New Testament. So it is a unique feature of this book. Consider some of the other places where this question is used. You don't don't have to turn there. I'm going to go through these in staccato fashion. Chapter 6 and verse 2. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? Chapter 6, verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Chapter 6, verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Chapter 6, verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Chapter 9, verse 13. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? Chapter 9, verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Know ye not, do you not know, is the type of question you might ask someone who claims to have been a Christian for years, but on account of the sin and ignorance that is manifest in their life, they lead you to believe that the Lord saved them last night, if at all. When one considers the doctrinal folly and the worldly conduct that characterizes so much of Americanized Christianity, it makes you want to beg the question, know ye not? When we look around and we see what some so-called churches are, are preaching and teaching as, as doctrinal truth, when we see the conduct of those who profess to know Jesus Christ, it makes, we, makes us want to say, know ye not? It's just so obviously unbiblical. Know ye not? But again, it's easy to think of the many examples outside of us, but I'm not preaching to the outside of us. I'm preaching to you. And so let me ask you, if if Paul, the apostle, were to hear your testimony, and then were to examine your life, your manner of conduct, your doctrinal knowledge, what areas of your thoughts, actions, motives, conduct, character? What what areas of your life would cause the apostle to look at you and say, Know ye not? Know ye not? You make the profession that you've known the Lord for some period of time, months, years, perhaps even decades. But what might cause the apostle to ask of you, Know ye not? Not. May God the Holy Ghost ask you that question even tonight. See, it is often those things that you don't know, that you should know, that cause you to be a great danger to the church of Christ. I'm not too worried about someone who comes, who sits under the ministry, and who says, I don't know very much. I'm a new convert, I'm a young believer, I'm not very studied. And they know that about themselves. That's a safe place to be. 
but it's the one who doesn't know and thinks they know and parades around as if they do know, they defile God's church. God help us to not be like that. God give us an ounce, a dose of humility that we might truly see ourselves for what we are, not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So Paul says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. That ye are the temple of God. Note the emphasis is on the second person plural. Ye. Ye are the temple. Now, one of the reasons why I believe the King James is very helpful in instances like these is because the King James differentiates singular and plural pronouns. Very simply, anything that begins in T, thee, thou, thine, is singular. Anything that begins in Y, ye, you, your, is plural. So when he says, no, ye not, he's not talking to them as individuals. He is referring to them as a collective body. He is saying that the church as a whole... All of the members of the church make up the temple of God. Now, it is true that individuals are also called the temple of God in chapter 6 and verse 19. But that is not the emphasis of this text, nor is it the emphasis of the New Testament as a whole. This temple is not constituted by any one Christian. We are collectively, the members of the church are collectively the temple. It is the community of the New Testament and her members that constitute the temple of God in the new covenant. So Paul says, Know ye not that ye, the church, ye are the temple of God, and, and here's the defining characteristic of the temple, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Again, the Spirit of God personally indwells all individual believers, but that's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul is teaching that there is a sense in which the church as a body corporately receives the indwelling of the Spirit of God. What is so special about the temple? It is the place where God dwells. It is the place where He manifests Himself in glory and in grace in ways that He does not make Himself known anywhere else. God meets with us when we come together corporately to worship Him in ways that He does not meet with us when we are elsewhere to put that very simply you sitting out on your bass boat is not having church you sitting home at the coffee table is not having church God is present in his church in ways that he is not present at the grocery store The scriptures make it clear that God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. I believe we can even make the scriptural case that God is in hell because He is the one who personally administers the torments to those damned souls in hell. But God is present in His church in a revelation of His grace and His glory and His majesty and His awe in ways that He is not other places. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne and His train filled the temple. The temple. God uniquely displays Himself in the midst of His assembled people. And I've said this before, and I believe that it is true. The closest 
that we will ever get to beholding God face to face on earth is the hour and a half that we spend between the call to worship and the benediction. Because when you assemble with Christ's church, you enter into the Holy of Holies in the New Testament temple of the Lord. Far excelling that Old Testament Levitical priesthood is the New Testament temple that we have called, we've been called to partake in. The reason why the church is such a beautiful temple is because God is there. God is there. What makes the church beautiful? God is there. It's not the pillars. It's not the building. It's not the paint on the walls. It's not the chairs that we sit in. It's not the steeple. It's not the stained glass. What makes the church beautiful is that God is there. Through His Word. Through His ordinances. Through the preaching. Through the singing. Through the psalms. God is there. The world looks at earthly temples made of precious stones, made of marbles, and the world says, what beauty is this building? But there's nothing beautiful about it if God is not there. And instead of taking the expensive and flashy things of the world, God has taken this ragtag, motley crew of dirty, filthy sinners, and He's cleansed them, and He's washed them, and He's conformed them to the image of His Son, and that is beautiful in His eyes. It's beautiful in His eyes. In the city of Corinth, I mean, we, we have this American context. It's hard for us to understand these things. If you can, and I know some of you in this room have, if you can get out of America, you will understand this picture a little bit better. In the city of Corinth, they didn't have a Baptist church and a church of Christ and a Presbyterian and a Methodist church on every corner like we do here. What did they have in Corinth? Temples. Beautiful Temples, by the world standard, pagan temples, made of very expensive material. None of those buildings were the temple of God. You went to Corinth and, and, and you said, well, where is the temple of God? And you would go up to this beautiful gold inlaid ivory palace of a temple and you would say, surely this must be where God's people are. This must be the temple of God. No, no. God's temple was in some upper room hiding in the city somewhere. Meeting in a little hut, obscure, overlooked, and forsaken. Now, I don't think, by the way, let me say this as an aside, I don't think that that's a, a command. It's not a sin for us to have a nice facility. But that was God's temple in Corinth, where God's people met, where two or three are gathered. There am I in the midst of them. You know what that verse is actually talking about, by the way? Again, it's not talking about you and your buddy out on the John boat fishing. Chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is specifically giving instructions to the church. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of going to South India, Hyderabad. Very poor region of a very poor country. And as we rode through town, we would see these beautiful Hindu temples. I mean, you're talking about people that don't know where their next meal is coming from, but they will give anything they have to construct this building that is inlaid with gold and covered in all these rubies and emeralds. The, the most expensive, by far, building in the whole city. It really looks quite strange because you've got this just magnificent, immaculate building 
and it just this trashy, dirty city. That's worldly wisdom. That's worldly wisdom. But to God, we drove by that temple. To God, the little grass hut that didn't even have a roof and didn't even have a floor that we met in and and exalted Jesus and preached the gospel of God, that was the beautiful temple of God in that place. I know we have a lot to cover. And I know that only on the first point here, but I, I, I want to show you the progression of God's temple culminating in the New Testament church. The glorious truth that I want you to see is that God has from the beginning sought out a place to dwell with His people. In the Garden of Eden, He had a temple as He met and fellowshiped and communed with Adam in the Garden. And the imperative for you as an individual... You as, a, as an individual Christian believer, the imperative for you is to find that temple. Where are God's people? Find that temple and unite with them. Turn to Exodus 40. Hold your place, 1 Corinthians. Turn to Exodus 40. In the Old Covenant, there was the tabernacle, which was kind of a, a tentative, moving temple. Then Israel, as I like to say, Israel got some money in their building fund, and then Solomon came along and they built a permanent building. Exodus 40, look at verse 16 first. Exodus 40 and verse 16, God gave Moses the instructions to build the temple, to build the tabernacle, excuse me. And notice what it says. Verse 16, Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. And if you read that whole chapter, you will find that phrase repeated again and again. Thus did Moses, as the Lord commanded him, so did he, so did he. What is that telling us? When we are building the temple of God, we must do it to the T of how God has said to do it. We have no license. If God told Moses to build a gold laver and put badger skin on it, he did not have the authority to build a brass laver and put bear skins on it. He had to do it exactly the way God said to do it. In the New Testament church, we have no authority to do anything beyond or not in the Word of God. Now, I want you to see the inauguration, the accreditation of this temple. Look at verse 34 of Exodus 40. Verse 34, Exodus 40. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What is that? The temple of God where the Spirit dwells. Filled the tabernacle, and Moses, verse 35, was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If you read in Second Chronicles chapter 7, maybe jot that down, read it later, when they built Solomon's temple, same scene. The temple was constructed, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, the priests could not go into the temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And that was the Old Testament temple. God indwelt this physical building, located ultimately in Jerusalem, And if you were going to worship God and serve God according to His Word, you would have to go to that physical building because that was God's temple, that was where God dwelled, that was where God met with His people. But friend, that was the chateau, the type, the picture of the Old Covenant. Turn to Acts chapter number 2. Turn to Acts chapter number 2. In Acts chapter number 2, the Bible reveals to us the surpassing glory of the church as the New Testament temple of God. Acts chapter number 2, 
First verse. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, now this is so important, they, who's they? The disciples of Jesus Christ who had been baptized by John, who had walked with Jesus, who worshipped with Jesus, the same people to whom Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Jesus dies, Jesus ascends, Jesus says, tarry in Jerusalem. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They're not individuals sitting at home on a Zoom meeting. They're in one accord in one place. Verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. It's the same thing that took place in Exodus 40. But... This is a big but. There's a glorious distinction between what took place in the Old Testament was taking place here. Verse 3, There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. Verse 4, And they, not the upper room, not the tent, not the building, not the walls, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Say, what is so much more glorious about the New Testament church that excels and surpasses and goes beyond the glories of the Old Testament temple. Brothers and sisters, it's not confined to one sacred location in Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with the building, with the walls, with the materials. The New Testament temple is constituted of you, of Christians, of individuals, of people. And wherever they are, there their Lord meets with them. He no longer just has one temple sitting in Jerusalem, but he has been pleased over the last 2,000 years. And I guarantee you with the authority of the Word of God that until he comes again, he will continue to plant his churches, plant his congregations all over the world. Christianity began with 11 men in an attic in Jerusalem. 11 men in an attic for three centuries. Universally illegal. You were thrown in a coliseum to be devoured by lions. Heretics crept up. The Pope set up his little pseudo-kingdom. But all along there was this glorious river. Sometimes underground for a season. Often persecuted. Often in the minority. But the gates of hell never prevailed. And then yes, we see our forefathers who have gone on before us who declared the grand truths of Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We see that flowing in Europe. We see that coming to America. And now here we are, 2,000 years after this happened, halfway across the globe, sitting in Paris, Tennessee, the temple of the Lord. There is a special and precious way in which God indwells and abides with His church that He does not abide with us as individuals, who may be personally converted, but are not members of and united with the corporate body, the church. The church. In the Old Testament, see, you could be truly converted and you could never step foot in the temple. There's no salvation in the temple. But if you were going to worship God rightly and serve Him rightly, you had to go to that temple. You were missing out on this community presence of God. Well, in the New Testament, there is a sense 
in which Christians who are not members of the Lord's church are likewise missing out on that corporate fellowship that God desires to have with His people. So I urge you not only to ensure that your body is a personal temple of God through the regenerating work of the Spirit, but friend, also ensure that you are a part of this corporate, assembled, covenanted temple of God. It's what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years. It's what He will continue to do. Be a part of what God is doing. So in verse 16, we have the church defined for us as the spiritual temple of God under the new covenant. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 3. That is the church defined. But now let's look at verse 17. I want you to see the church defiled. The church defiled. Paul says, you are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. You are this glorious thing that God has been doing. That Christ has been building. And he says this in verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Because of the significance of the church in redemptive history and the special love that God has for His church, He will not tolerate anything that would seek to do harm to His temple. Do you think that Jesus is going to die upon the cross and shed His blood? to redeem this church, to build this body, to unite these believers, only to let some Johnny-come-latelys come by and destroy what he has done? Absolutely not. If any man. Note the wording. The language is both universal and specific. If any man. Any and all men. No threat is exempt here. Any man. Anyone, no one gets a pass. But note by the phrase, any man, the implication is not that the biggest threat to the church is some large existential force somewhere out in the world. That's not what Paul is concerned with here. It is those within the body. Sometimes just one man that posed the greatest danger to the church. It is not someone outside doing physical harm. It is someone inside doing spiritual harm with which Paul is most concerned. Steve Lawson said, The Judas Iscariots always do more harm than the Caesars. This is important for us to grasp because as it is with many things in our Christian life, what do we like to do? We like to place the blame on things outside of us that we cannot control. You blame your spiritual immaturity. You blame your unholiness. You blame your ungodliness on other people and other things when the reality is that the fault is laid at the doorsteps of your own heart. And what's true for you individually is true for us as a church. The greatest problems we face as a body are not in society. They are sitting in the pews. They are standing behind the pulpit. For Israel in the Old Testament, sin in the camp. Do you remember the story of Ai? The battle of Ai? Sin in the camp was far more dangerous than the Canaanites. So it is with us in the church. A church member who gossips and slanders is much more deadly than an Islamic terrorist. 
Church members who do not love one another do far more harm than any civil government. Oh, how hypocritical we are in the eyes of God when we are so quick to point out the sins of society. We are so quick to point out the evils in the world around us. We could preach for hours and hours and I would, I would get amens and hallelujahs if I talked about all of the wicked things that our government is doing. But see, Joe Biden comes and goes. But the church, the church is forever. We need not be concerned. What does the Bible say? Fret not thyselves at the evildoers. We need not be concerned with those things more than we're concerned with our own walk and holiness and desire to do what God has bidden us to do and called us to be. How hypocritical we are when we are quick to point out all the evils of society while we overlook the evils within our own heart. Do you know what keeps me from being more holy? It's me. Do you know what keeps me from being more faithful? It's not my busy life. It's not my other obligations. It's not my secular job. No, what keeps me from being a better Christian is me. Do you know what keeps Christ fellowship from being more holy? It's us. The world is going to hate and persecute the church. Does that does that surprise you? Lost people acting like lost people? Does that surprise you? No, that is to be expected. What should shock us is with those who claim to be God's people think, live, and act like that lost world that they are so quick to condemn themselves. Would to God that we would hate our own sins as much as we hate the sins of lost people. This church will be as godly and Christ-exalting and God-honoring as we, her members, determine to be regardless of what happens in the world around us. We are called to be salt and light. And I believe that when a true gospel church is planted in a society, and that gospel that they preach permeates in that society, there will be a manifest change in the world around them, but that change will not come if we have not first applied these principles to ourselves. So he says, if any man, if any of you, let me put it that way, if any of you, if I, if any man, defile the temple of God, what does it mean to defile? To mar? To desecrate, to profane. This is not a light sin. Think of the ceremonial cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. That is the language that is being used here. If a priest entered the temple unclean, he ceremonially defiled the temple. God would kill him if he were to do that. You realize the priest had to go in to the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankles in case God struck him dead so they could drag him out? Well, when you enter the church with an unclean heart, you spiritually defile the church. In the same way that the Old Testament priests 
ceremonially defiled the temple. This verse, really, verse 17, is pivotal in understanding the entire book of 1 Corinthians because the whole epistle could be rightly understood as the apostle dealing with various issues, all of which defiled the church. I'm not going to go into detail because, Lord willing, we're going to preach through this entire book if the Lord tarries. But I do believe it would be helpful for me to list some of these things for you. So if you're a note taker, this is a good time to jot some things down. If any man defile the church, what are some things that defile the church? Even here from 1 Corinthians, what are some things that defile the church? Do any of these things describe you? Number one, a party spirit. A sectarian spirit. A divisive spirit. That defiles the church. When we are looking to men as our leaders in an unbiblical way. Two, worldly wisdom. Worldly philosophy. Three, fleshly and immature behavior. Simply growing up would save us from a lot of the folly that goes on in our churches. Four, arrogance, pride, narcissism, self-centeredness. You'll sit there and be served all day, but you would never lift a finger to serve anyone else. Five, sexual immorality. That defiles the church. Six, improperly practicing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because they are God's means of grace to us. And we do not practice them correctly. We defile the church. Seven, and lastly, although this list could go on and on, I'm just pointing out some of the major themes in 1 Corinthians. Doctrinal compromise of all sorts. Doctrinal compromise of all sorts. For whatever reason the compromise is for, it defiles the church. And we do not stand adamantly upon thus saith the Lord. May God help us to abhor such wicked things, to recognize the peril that they bring into the church, and to strive to stamp out these heinous sins when they rear their ugly head in Christ's church. And brothers and sisters, they will rear their ugly head here. We've been here a year, and these things have reared their ugly head here. And when they do, we as God's people must be quick. Say, we will not allow this defilement to enter into the temple of God. That's the church defiled. Thirdly, the church defended. Why must we be so proactive in our fight against sin in the church? Because if we don't deal with it, God will. If we don't deal with it, God will. Now, we can deduce from various portions of Scripture that God does give a space of repentance for His people. We do not know what that space is. That is why when we see the first inklings of these things creeping into the Lord's church, anything that might defile creeping in to this temple, we must be proactive in our fight against it because God will deal with it. These verses tell us, do not mess with the Lord's church. It says, if any man defile the temple, him shall God destroy. God's not playing around. Him shall God destroy. 
This is perfect retributive justice. The word for destroy is the same word translated defile earlier in this verse. So literally this reads, if anyone destroys the church, God shall destroy him. This is a promise. This is a threat. God will bring divine judgment on individuals that disrupt the peace and purity of His church. God is the one who personally safeguards His church and it is God that will see to it that everyone who brings harm to His church will be dealt with accordingly. That ought to cause us to pause. That ought to cause us to think very deeply about our own conduct and our own actions. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter number 5, the Bible identifies the church as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That is the church. That is Christ's will for the church. That is what Christ is doing for the church. That is Christ's love for the church. Husbands, how would you respond if someone that you knew and trusted Perhaps you've invited them into your home. All appearances, this person seems to be someone who has fellowship and communion with you. How would you respond if that person were to sin against, harm, and even defile your wife? Well, if you were worth anything as a husband, you would move very quickly, very swiftly, with a righteous wrath to destroy that miserable individual that harmed your wife. You would say, I'm not going to allow this. I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm going to put an end to this. How much more does the perfect heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, defend his bride, the church. When you defile the church, you are defiling another man's wife. You're defiling the wife of the God-man, Jesus Christ. When the church at Pergamos had individuals propagating false doctrine in the church, Christ issued this warning in Revelation 2 and verse 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice he didn't say I would fight against the church. He said I will fight against those in the church that are defiling the church because the church is mine. When you do things to harm and defile Christ's church, you make yourself the personal enemy of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus is going to defend his bride. He's going to purify his bride. He's going to protect his bride. He's not going to let you, some creature from the dirt, defile her. 
God loves His people with whom His name dwells. Because He is good, because He is loving, because He is righteous, because He is just, God will valiantly defend His church from all harm. And this should not scare you. This should encourage you. That should cause you to rejoice that you have such a bridegroom that is protecting you, that is loving you, that is nurturing you, that is keeping you. Now at times it may seem like sin is abounding in the church and that those who harm the body are going unpunished. And we cry out, Lord, how long? How long will you allow this to go on? Let me encourage you, saints, never mistake God's forbearance with God's forgetfulness. There is a day of reckoning, and few will have a more harsh condemnation than those who sin against the Lord's church. That is the church defended. Lastly, the church described. The church described. He says in verse 17 at the end of the verse, For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. See, not only is, has God exhibited His grace and glory in the church, He has also vowed to protect the church. And the holiness of the church is maintained and upheld by the might of a sovereign God. And by the way, that is what God is protecting. He's protecting the holiness of the church. He has not always promised to protect our physical lives. He has not always promised to protect our property. He has not always promised to protect our our physical safety and livelihood. He's promised to protect our holiness. And if you think that that matters less than all of those other things, you need to get your priorities straight. John Bunyan said that the church in the fires of persecution is like the queen in the perfuming chamber being made fit for the presence of the king. The church, which is God's unique possession, His dwelling place, is also perpetually guarded by her omnipotent master and bridegroom. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus will not be presented with a downtrodden, defeated, iniquitous, and defiled church, but His bride shall be glorious and holy even as He is. Husbands, think about the feeling that welt up within your heart as you stood at that altar and you saw your bride come walking towards you in that white dress. doesn't even come close to what Jesus Christ will see. But it is about as close as we will get to understanding what He will see on that day. As we will be decked with fine linen, clothed in His righteousness, presented to Him. But it's not just that the temple will be holy then. It is that the temple is holy now. It is holiness, not carnality and worldliness, that characterizes a true church of Jesus Christ. We know that because he says the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye will be? No, he says which temple ye are. Ye are holy. Ye are righteous. Now. This is Paul's chief motivating argument for Christians to pursue holiness as members of Christ's church. 
Christ has shed his blood for the church, not merely so we as individuals could be spiritually saved from sin, but so we could assemble together as a justified and holy body of believers. He did not just save you so that you could go to heaven someday. He saved you so that you could live for Him and worship Him and serve Him now. You want a simple proof of that? You didn't die immediately after He saved you. Christ is building this holy church through the assembling together of holy Christians. And those of you who have come and united with Christ's church, you are this temple. This is talking about you. Uh, I'm not into the whole motivational believe in yourself, look at your self-worth type of deal. Not at all. Don't don't get me mixed up with that crowd. I understand the Bible says plenty about our wickedness and those are all true verses. But sometimes I think we, we can get in the cage stage the total depravity cage stage, and we can just walk around, you know, man is perpetually wicked, man is totally depraved, man is deceitful above all else, no one can know his heart, he's just this filthy, wretched, nasty, gross, ugly sinner. Yes. But he's not going to stay that way. And if Christ has saved you, yes, you still struggle with those heinous sins. Believer, you are holy. You are righteous in Christ. And when God looks at you, He does not see you wallowing in that filth. He sees you already wearing that wedding gown. Already clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. He could not look on you if He did not see that. Christ has died so that you would be a holy people who dwell with Him. He did not die so that you could go on living a life unto yourself. He did not die. You did not get married so that you could continue living as a bachelor. You know, I probably haven't prepared a full meal since I got married. You know why that is? I didn't get married so I could keep eating my own food. It's not why I got married. Believer, Christ did not betroth you as His bride so that you could go on striving in your own flesh, trying to make your own way. He betrothed you so that you could rest in Him. So that you could be united with Him. So that you could go into His house under His care, under His providence, and be cared for by Him. Christians who have no desire to fellowship with Christ's church are going to be absolutely miserable in heaven. What is heaven but not the glorified eschatological church eternally worshiping Christ throughout the ceaseless ages? That's what it is. And if you have no desire for the church now, what makes you think you will desire it then? May it be said that Christ's fellowship is a holy temple composed of holy individuals. And that's what's so beautiful about the economy of grace. The church would not be if there were not holy individuals that are saved independently and individually by Christ, but yet you as a Christian, you will have a very hard time living a holy life without the fellowship of the church because that is the means of God's grace to you. Be holy, for Christ is holy, and He desires you to be a member of His holy bride. How fitting of a message this is on such a day. A day that many celebrate as Reformation Day, October 31st. 
And many think of the Reformation with an emphasis on grand soteriological truths, the doctrine of, of salvation. And, and, and yes, I'm glad that those things were emphasized, but see, we, we as Baptists, there, there's something that distinguishes us from that Protestant Reformation, and that is that not only do we, we agree and amen with that soteriology, but we also follow a very biblical ecclesiology. Not only was there a revival of the doctrine of salvation, but through the particular Baptists, there was also a revival of the biblical doctrine of the church. And one of those emphases was the doctrine of a regenerate church membership. That's, by the way, that's what I've been preaching to you this whole evening. A regenerate church membership. The imperative of holiness as an essential trait of the congregation. We do not believe that anyone who does not make a profession of new life in Christ and does not bear the fruits of redemption has any right to membership in the church. Why? Because Christ's church is a holy temple. Christ's church is made up of holy people. Not holy in and of themselves. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you must attain to some level of holiness before you can be a member of Christ's church. I'm saying that if Christ has saved you, you are holy. He has imputed His righteousness to you. We heard that preached last Sunday. Our brother did an excellent job with that text. You say, well, but it's impossible to have a regenerate church on earth because we cannot look into someone's heart and inevitably there will be false converts that will enter into the church. I say to you, yes, I cannot see into anyone's heart. But Christ can. And Christ does. He knows who are His. And there's coming a day in which Christ shall complete the purification of His church and false converts and false professors and those that defiled His church on earth shall be removed and they shall be cast out. And the church in heaven will consist of a perfectly regenerate and glorified membership. Consider your own life. Do any of you think, well, because I can't be sinlessly perfect on earth, I might as well not even try to be holy. No, your, your logic is this. If it's correct, your logic is, I will one day be holy, perfect, without blemish, standing before Christ, and I know that's Christ's will for me, so I have all the heavenly encouragement and motivation to try to be holy in this life, on the flesh, and to strive for godliness. It's the same with the church. We strive to be a holy temple now because there is coming a day in which our striving shall be complete. Christ will fully purge and purify and we will be His holy temple. And we'll look back on our struggles to be a holy church as a foretaste to the holy communion that we will experience forever and ever and ever. This is a foretaste. Your strivings with sin, your victory over sin, that's a foretaste. Now let me say this to you. If you are not holy in any sense of the word, you are not qualified to be a member of this holy temple because you are not yet a Christian. And what you need to do is not go to the baptismal waters, is not go to receive the Lord's Supper, is not even go to a pastor, is not repeat some silly prayer. You need to go to Christ. And you need to receive the holiness that only He can give. The holiness that he offers to repentant sinners. And once you've received that holiness, then it is commanded of you to unite with that holy temple. 
the church of Jesus Christ on earth. This is God's will for us as individuals, as well as a body of believers. And may we do all that our Lord bids us to do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us as a people, your goodness to us as a church. Thank you for this holy temple that you have constructed through the power of the Spirit of God. May we live worthy of the calling that we have been called with. May you be pleased and glorified in what we do as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.